Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Fighting Genius Podcast. My guest today is Melissa K. Norris. She helps hundreds of thousands of people each month uh, raise their own food and create a homemade and homegrown kitchen, a home, garden, and barnyard through her website uh, called Popular Pioneering Today. Uh, the podcast is called Popular Pioneering Today Podcast. Uh, she runs what's called the Pioneering Today Academy and has books on various topics as well. So nice to meet you, Melissa. How are you doing? Hi, Rich. Good. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about your background. Were you always a homesteader or were you uh, you know, caught up in the, the modern world for a long time and then made a change? Yeah, a little bit of both, which sounds kind of funny. But I was raised, we didn't call it homesteading back in the day. Like we were just country people. You know, we just lived, lived a country life. My dad and mom always raised a big garden, canned our own food, raised our own beef. And then when I got out of the house and got married and on my own, then I started working full time as a pharmacy tech. And even though I'd been raised, you know, cooking from scratch and providing a lot of your own food and essentially what we call modern homesteading today, you know, working full time, that is really hard to do when you don't get home until about seven o'clock at night. And that's where my schedule was. So I really got away from my roots in a way for a period of time. And we live so far out that there was no and there still is no like Uber Eats or drive throughs that type of thing. So I thought I was cooking at home because I was kind of assembling ingredients like casserole kits and stuff and I would put it in the oven and pull it out. However, I wasn't really cooking from scratch or using whole ingredients and ended up having some health scares that really started making me look at what I was cooking with, what the ingredients were, how is it made, how was it raised, etc. And that put us on a path of really diving back into what I would say my roots and producing almost all of our own food while still working. My husband still works his day job. Um, I quit working in pharmacy about five years ago. But so it was a little bit of both, I have to say. Okay. So what did this uh, this journey into homesteading look like? Like when did you decide to teach other people and do videos and, you know, have books and all that stuff? Yeah. So it's been about, well, I got to do some math now. It's been about 12 years ago now. And that was kind of when we really started diving into homesteading a lot deeper than we already had been. Um, and the reason for that is, as I said, I had some health problems. I ended up having my upper stomach and esophagus biopsied for cancer. And thankfully, they came back benign. But I had a lot of erosion and damage as long and beginning of cellular change, which usually cellular change is kind of your precursor to precancerous cells. And so it was at that point that the specialist said, you need to figure out what you're eating and how it's causing these reactions because you're on the max dose of prescription medications you can be on. It's not solving the problem and you can't even stay on these medications any longer. So basically you figure this out or the next time you come back and see me, your results are not going to be as good. So that was really this this big catalyst. And so we started raising 
almost all of our own meat. So we were already raising our own grass-fed beef and we started raising our own pasture-raised pork. We got meat chickens and started butchering those ourselves, chickens for eggs, and then really bumped up what we were doing in the garden. And part of that was because 12 13 years ago, uh, there wasn't as many options as there is now. We've actually kind of came a long way, but I also couldn't afford some of the other options. So I could afford to grow a garden and make homemade tomato sauce that was in glass jars. And I know how to fructose corn syrup was, you know, that type of thing. I couldn't necessarily afford to buy that off the store shelf. So we really increased our garden production and raised about 75% now of our fruit for an entire year for our family of four and about 65% of our vegetables for an entire year. And that includes preserving them for our family. And a lot of that was kind of out of necessity. But as I was walking this journey, I had a lot of people who were wanting to to do what we were doing and who were also having some different issues and wanted to learn about it. And so I started a blog because, you know, 12, 13 years ago, there was a lot more blogs and that was just taking photos and kind of writing out step by steps. And then I had people that would say, okay, this is great, but can you actually do a video on this? And so it really just naturally evolved from people following my journey, finding the website and asking asking for more and to where we are today. So it sounds like you're eating pretty healthily, but still having health problems. So did you have to be like hardcore about it and literally raise everything yourself to help your health? Or did you feel like you weren't eating well and just by eating decently that that did it for you? It was kind of a combination of both. That's a really good question. So first, for first off was for me, it was figuring out what foods were actually triggering my acid reflux. And that might sound kind of funny because a lot of times people think, oh, well, you just cut out acidic foods. Like don't drink, you know, don't drink coffee or don't eat tomatoes or that type of thing. But for me, with the point with where mine was, I really had to cut out it, not everything I was still eating, but I had to cut out like chocolate. And I love coffee. I had to cut out coffee. I had to cut out chocolate. I cut out bread. I cut out dairy. I really cut out everything to allow my my digestive system to have a chance to heal. And then as I started looking at what, as I was going to bring items back in, which is a, a very common if people have ever kind of walked this health journey, it's basically you're doing an elimination diet. And then you slowly bring back in a food or so at a time and see, do I have a reaction to this? And if so, then you obviously stop eating that. And if not, then you're like, okay, great. This is a food that my body agrees with. And and then you'll kind of test the next thing to see where you're at. So I was doing that. But as I was starting to bring food back in, after I'd went through a period of, of just kind of eliminating a lot of what would, can be considered kind of common trigger foods, then as I started to bring them back in, I really looked at the ingredients and my hard rule was no genetically modified crops, which would include like high fructose corn syrup, no food dye, no hydrogenated oils. And if I can't pronounce the ingredient or I don't know what it is, then I either need to research further and figure out what that is or I'm not eating it. So I kind of just made like this simplified rule system, but that meant that there was a lot of stuff that I wasn't able to bring back in unless we were growing it ourselves or finding an alternative. So for anybody who's crying because I just said I had to cut out coffee, I was able to bring coffee back in, but it had to be organic shade grown coffee. And the reason for that is because if coffee is grown in the shade, it actually has less acid in it. Like the bean itself is less acidic mm. when it's grown in the shade. And so that really made me start looking at how crops are grown and how much that can affect 
the way that they affect us when we're eating them and, and what they do to the body. And therefore, we did start raising a lot of our own. But there is still quite a few things that, you know, I I still buy from the store. Yeah. We, you know, we live in a northern environment and I'm not growing. I am able to eat bread now um, if I do sourdough and that type of thing. But we're not growing our own wheat. So I still buy wheat and rice, you know, those types of things from the store. Coconut oil. I'm not growing coconut oil. We do render our own lard, but, you know, I'm still buying I'm still buying items from the store. It just looks a lot different than having, you know, a can of condensed soup and, you know, a lot of those kind of convenience items that we cook from. I don't really have those on my shelves in the pantry anymore. So what did you notice when you uh, started changing over your diet? It was actually, it was fascinating. One is it took about three weeks and my symptoms completely like subsided. And I had been having, it had been about three years that I'd been having the symptoms and they just kind of kept getting worse and worse, which is why they kept adding more and more prescriptions and that type of thing. And so I would have never believed, honestly, and as a pharmacy tech, I mean, I worked in medicine. If someone had told me before I went through it myself, that if you just changed the food that you were eating, you would be you know, healed and you would have complete, I would have never believed that it was that simple, that it really was just the food that I was eating until I actually cut all those foods out for long enough. You know, a couple of days is probably not going to make that much of a difference. You might notice it a little bit if you have a really strong reaction to something, but it really takes the body a little bit, especially if it's something that you um, are very sensitive to and you're, you know, it takes a while for that inflammation to go down and all of that to really symptomize. But within three weeks, I wasn't having the breakthrough acid anymore. The ulcers were starting to heal. I wasn't feeling that like constant burning. For anybody who's had stomach ulcers to that degree, it's kind of hard to explain that pain. But that almost constant pain was gone. And I was I had to slowly taper off of the medications because I had actually been on them at such high doses for so long that if I were to have quit them cold turkey, I would have actually triggered some responses um, within my body. And so I had to to taper off of those. Yeah. <laughs> now that I started when I related all, I'm like, oh my gosh. But I was able to taper off of them. And that took almost six months to fully taper off everything. But I have never had to go back on them. I've never had stomach ulcers again. Like that is all subsided and healed. And what also was interesting is I was definitely having the, the stomach ulcer issues and the GERD, but I didn't realize how much extra inflammation. I mean, and at this point, at this point in time, I was in my late 20s. So I was pretty young. And I did not realize how inflamed my joints were until they weren't. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like mm. when I've been down to put wood in the fire, my knees don't hurt anymore. And so there was like all of these little things of awareness that I would, I guess you just get used to that at a certain level. And then they were suddenly gone. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this doesn't hurt. And so it was really amazing, and I noticed a lot of it really within just a few weeks. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. 
Now back to the show. All right. So these all the symptoms went away and you noticed a lot of little things that were beneficial. Did these gains keep accumulating or like what happened from there? Yeah, that's a good question. What's interesting is I really felt like about after the first probably two to three months, everything just kind of like stabilized. Um, you know, I just felt better all the way around. Digestion was improved. I wasn't having the, the symptoms and all those types of things. And as long as I stay eating, and I hate to even use the word clean because that means so many different things to different people. I think a better way of probably phrasing that is as long as I stay consuming the foods that don't trigger symptoms, like I'm good. So here we are, you know, almost 12 years later. But if I start to slowly creep back into old habits, especially like traveling, because that's when it's harder is honestly, is if you're doing a lot of traveling, you know, that part gets a lot worse. And so I will notice that symptoms will start to creep back in. And so for me, it seems to be that stomach acid is, is just my body's way of like saying, hey, you need to pay attention. You're doing things that we're not happy with. So I kind of just know as soon as I start to feel heartburn um, on a frequent basis, kick back in. And I can always look and be like, yep, I've you know been eating more of the of these foods than I should be. I, I tend to have a higher tolerance now. Like I can consume some things that in the past in that beginning first year or two, I, I couldn't eat at all. And now I, mm. if I have them like once a week, I'm pretty good. Um, if I start to have them more than once a week or just too often, then I'll start to notice symptoms flaring back up. So it's being very cognizant of my body's reaction because I think a lot of a lot of the issue as I look back to is my body was telling me this is not agreeing with you. But I didn't attribute it to when what I was eating or what I was consuming. I wasn't paying attention enough to the correlation. Like you ate or drank this and 30 minutes later, you felt like this. You know, I just wasn't paying attention to that. So now if I start to not feel well, then I try to really like pause for a minute and think, okay, what have you been doing differently or what have you, what did you eat? And was there a correlation there? And a lot of times there is. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. What about the homesteading part? Do you advise people now that have that live in urban areas or rural areas? So, like, what are the um, the top homesteading issues that you get questions about? Or, hey, can you make content on this or that? Yeah, I mean, really, a lot of people are looking at the our food, right? Because I mean, no matter no matter where you are, you're going to be eating. And so, a lot of people, regardless if they live in the country or suburban or completely urban, you know, in an apartment or whatnot, is trying to find the best source of food. And so, for a lot of people, that is, they might not be able to raise their own meat, but can they find a farmer where they can go and buy directly from him? And so kind of trying to get away from the large industrial farming practices and food, because when we start to look at that, I mean, that's really where we have a lot of different additives and and different things or or food being raised. For example, when we look at grass-fed beef, so you've got grass-fed, grass-finished beef, and then you have kind of conventional larger farm agriculture raised beef. 
and that is being fed a lot of corn and a lot of grain. And so the differences there is grass-fed, grass-finished beef is going to be higher in omega-3s because of just the way a cow's stomach with the rumen and the way that they were they were made is to be chewing their cud and eating grass and or hay. They weren't made to consume mass amounts of grain the way that a lot of industrial agriculture has went. And the reason that they've done that is because they put on weight faster. So it makes sense from a purely financial standpoint. However, it does change the meat from being more omega-3 to a higher level of omega-6. And we do need omega-6s in our diet, but we get way more omega-6 in today's Western modern food than our bodies need. And so by going back to grass-fed and grass-finished beef, you are getting a healthier balance of omega-3s instead of the omega-6s. And a cow eating grass instead of mass amounts of silage and corn, which is usually, unfortunately, in this day and age in the United States, most corn is genetically modified. So if you can go back to a grass-fed, grass-finished cow, you're getting a healthier, as far as the omega-3s versus omega-6 balance, and you're supporting how cows were meant to naturally be in their natural environment. Because a lot of the issues that we see around the cattle industry right now with, you know, excess gas emissions, et cetera, it's because they're being raised in a way that nature never intended. And so when you get them back onto how they were supposed to be, which is grazing and on grass, almost all of those issues are resolved. So even if you can't do that, I realize most people are not going to have the acreage or the ability to go and raise their own grass-fed, grass-finished beef. But you absolutely yeah. have the opportunity to purchase that from farmers who are. And if you can even find the farmer and purchase directly from them, not only are you establishing a relationship in in your community, and that might be you driving, you know, if, if you live right in the middle of the city, you might be having to drive to a farm an hour or two, but you are supporting a small, local, independent farmer. And if you're buying directly from him, you are going to be paying less than if you're paying in the store because the store's the middleman. They're buying from the farmer. There's that markup and then you're getting it. Whereas if you can go directly to the farmer, you're going to be paying less and you have the ability to see how those animals are being raised, see what those practices are like. And really when we saw during the pandemic is a lot of supply chain breakdowns. But if your supply person is, you know, just an hour away and you know where they are and where they live, then we're not dealing with that, nor are we dealing with, you know, all the price increases that we've seen on goods because of fuel increases, because so many things are trucked, you know, in for so long of distances. So it's really about with the homesteading is is trying to find what if you can't grow it yourself, then trying to find a more local source and really building a community and just getting back to knowing your food and knowing your food sources. Makes sense. When it comes to beef, is grass finished? I mean, I, don't, I guess it wouldn't be as good as grass fed and grass finished. But if you were to rank, you know, no grass, no grass finishing, then just regular diet grass finishing, then maybe grass fed, no grass, et cetera. I mean, all the permutations, like how much better is the meat if it's at least grass finished or if it's grass fed and grass finished? Yeah, that's a great question. So for a, for a beef, for a cow to be grass fed, grass finished, it, it that's grass throughout the whole process. So it's only grass fed, grass finished. The reason that I say grass finished is because 
unfortunately, with the way uh, labeling and marketing and all that kind of stuff is right now in the United States, you can put grass fed on beef, but that doesn't mean it was grass finished unless it says grass finished. So oftentimes you'll have where cows will be raised on pasture grass as well as hay. And then the last three to six months before they go to be harvested and butchered, then they will feed them grain in order to get that gain and to get that extra fat and that extra weight on that animal the last three to six months of their life. And that is long enough to change that balance of omega from omega-3 to omega-6. So if it says grass-fed, grass-finished, that's your highest. That's like the, the ultimate of what you're after. Then you could, would look at just grass-finished. And if it doesn't say I mean, excuse me, grass-fed, if it doesn't say grass-finished, then you can assume, unless you can talk to the farmer, you know, if you have that direct relationship, you can ask them. But if you're just going off of like grocery store labels and it says grass-finished, excuse me, grass-fed, not grass-finished, it likely was fed grain at the end of its life. Now, being that it was grass-fed and some grain, but was still grass-fed, I mean, that's better than it being raised solely on grain products. So, you know, I think I have a better analogy here. So, What's, I don't know if there is a better, but what's better if it's grain-fed, grass-finished versus grass-fed, grain-finished? Any difference there, do you think? Well, yeah, because you're never you're never going to get grain-fed, grass-finished because if there are grain-fed, yeah, you'll, you'll only get grass-fed, grass-finished because they wouldn't switch to grass the last few months before processing just because they have fed them corn predominantly. And by that time, the house rumen... <laughs> which is in their, their stomach chamber, would have a really hard time transitioning from grain to grass, and it would actually have a decline in weight. And so they would never do that because it wouldn't make any sense financially because what the cow is fed helps determine the bacteria in their rumen and the way that they process their food. And so it's really hard to go from grain-fed to grass. It's easier transition to go from grass to grain, and then you get that beneficial weight yield, whereas the if you try to go the opposite, you're going to have a decline in weight, and so it just wouldn't make any sense. Okay, I understand what you mean. I see. Oh, what about for pork or you know, duck or chicken? What are some of the nuances there? To yeah, so I mean, with pork, there are. A, you really want to get into the nuances of pig, the pig breeding, and and meat. Uh, we could have an entire episode on that, but. Pork, for the most part, is going to be eating more than just grass. You know, you're going to be feeding them a mixture of vegetables, fat, and I mean, pigs are actually, well, actually, you know, they will eat almost anything, including meat, if given the opportunity. So when I am looking for pork that we're not raising ourselves, for me, again, I don't want to be consuming my, just my own personal and my own health journey and what I saw when I went off of when I cleared genetically modified foods out of our diet, I saw an increase in my health. So I don't want to eat anything that I know has been fed genetically modified food. So we only do organic certified feed for the pigs when we're bringing that in. And then we'll supplement with fruit and vegetables, just extra scraps and stuff on from our farm, which I know has been raised with organic practices. So they do eat some out in the pasture, like they will root up the pasture and they'll go after roots and that type of thing, but they also are getting fed. And so you'll never find just grass, like grass fed, grass finished doesn't apply to pork. So for me, I look for pasture raised because I, I don't want animals that are raised in confinement on concrete. That's not how animals were intended to be raised. And so I want 
animals that are raised on pasture, outside, feed in contact with the dirt, in grass, that type of thing. So I look for pasture-raised organic pork if it's not what I'm raising myself, if we're buying it from an outside source. And then same thing with chicken. And with chickens, unfortunately, the labels that we see on store chickens is so confusing because you'll see cage-free and you'll think that that means this that this chicken is out on, you know, in the fields and in the pasture. But that's not true. Most chicken farms, when it says cage-free, you've got a mass amount of birds just stuffed into a barn, but they're not in little tiny individual cages. And so I would look for organic. Again, the organic for me is just because I don't want to be eating genetically modified fed meat that has been eating genetically modified crops and looking for pasture raised. So those are kind of the big things that I look for if I'm not buying it or raise. I mean, if I'm not raising it myself, if I'm looking to buy right. it from an outside. So pasture raised. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. Makes sense. What about any additives that we can't see? You know, I've heard they're trying to put mRNA vaccines, and, you know, pigs and chickens and just screw up the whole food supply. Like, what are you seeing out there? And are you seeing yeah. dramatic differences? And uh, even if you're trying to get pasture raised, you know, chickens, or, uh, you know, pigs raised in the right way, or are people still running into bad meat, or is it still pretty easy to get? Yeah, that is a great question. And one is asking, so oftentimes you'll see antibiotic-free, right? You, you kind of will see that on any label. Well, it's against the law to give pork and chicken antibiotics. So antibiotic-free doesn't actually mean anything because you're, you can't give it to them anyway. So it's just kind of like a way to make the label look better, to be honest. Now, that's... Yeah. Now, vaccines, though, vaccines is different. And so when it comes to vaccines, we do not vaccinate any of our animals. I don't vaccinate my beef. I don't vaccinate our pork and I don't vaccinate our chickens. So ours are vaccine free. However, that is not the case in most from most large farms. And so, again, if you can know your farmer and ask them, then you can have that conversation with them. If you're buying it from the store, it probably is vaccinated because the suppliers that are supplying meat to stores are going to be larger scale than a backyard farmer. And the more animals that you have coming into a farm, the higher chance of disease. And if any animal, when it's alive, is crossing state lines... A lot of times they require vaccination in order to be able to cross state lines. So if they're they're buying the animal live from out of state and it's crossing a state line in order for that transaction to happen, then they are usually have to be vaccinated. So in most cases, assume if it's from the store or a larger farm, they probably are vaccinating. Now, is it an mRNA vaccine or not? And that's where it gets tricky. And we've seen a lot of stuff lately because as far as cattle go, Right now, there are not any licensed, and this is the key word here, there's not any licensed mRNA vaccinations available for cattle. That does not mean they're not being used in our food system, however, though, because they can use them as they are testing them. And they can be tested for a number of years before they're actually licensed and then labeled on our food. And we've seen this with milk. Um, in the dairy system where cows were being vaccinated and we had no idea, look at RBH, that was a the growth hormone that was in cows that were producing milk for the mass public and sold to the public. And they didn't have that on labels. It was not known. It was not a licensed thing for years. And it was still in our food supply. So that's where you have some mRNA vaccines that are being produced and used on chicken and pigs and now even in cattle. Is it licensed? 
know. So how do you know? Honestly, it's very hard to know. And even some of the farmers, when you go, if you are vaccinating, which I said, we don't, but even if you're a farmer and you're going to get your vaccines and you ask, is this mRNA or not? Because they're trying to avoid a lot of farmers, not all, are trying to avoid it. It's not even on the vaccine. So they don't even know, is this an mRNA vaccine or not? Because they, they haven't been putting it on them yet. So is all the meat out there available mRNA vaccinated? No. Is some of it? Yes. How do we know? It's a battle right now. And honestly, you really can't know unless you're buying from a farmer that doesn't vaccinate at all. It's almost yeah, that's terrible. It is. It is. It's actually it's it is terrible the way the the laws <laughs> what is allowed to be done to our food in the US by the USDA and the FDA is really quite horrible. And unfortunately, unless you are raising your own food or really, you know, in that grassroots level and at the farmer level, like the, the public has no idea. And it's kind of sad. What about some produce and, you know, vegetables, fruit, et cetera? Any advice there on buying the right things versus the wrong things? Yeah. You know, that one is a little bit hard too. So kind of what I like to try to look at is if you're concerned about pesticide load and herbicide load, which I was because we are so, I mean, everything has more chemicals than ever before. I mean, you look at, you know, just plastic and phthalates and cleaners and perfume, just all the things. We are exposed to a heavier toxicity load than any other humans in all of humanity as we look back. So I try to lessen that where I can. So for me, I look at the dirty dozen. And so they'll do a dirty dozen every year where they test the fruits and vegetables. You can get the top dirty dozen on both fruit and vegetables. And so that, that is tested for pesticides found on those. So the crops that have the highest pesticide and herbicide load are on the dirty dozen list. So for me, those are crops that I either look to grow myself or I'm going to try to get certified organic or find a farmer maybe in my area who might not be certified organic, but uses organic practices. Um, and the reason I say that is because the certification to become an organic farmer is actually very cost prohibitive. And so you have a lot of smaller farms that just can't absorb that cost. And so they can't put on their certified organic because they're not certified organic, but they use organic or even better than organic practices. And so if you can talk to them and find out, that's phenomenal. If you don't have that option, you're just at the grocery store. The Dirty Dozen are the ones that I look to purchase certified organic. And then the ones that aren't on the Dirty Dozen, I kind of look at my budget and what's available. And so like usually like cabbage hasn't been on there or asparagus. So I don't worry if now I grow both of those. But if I had to purchase them from the store, I don't worry as much about trying to find an organic option on that. Just knowing that they're not a heavily pesticide sprayed crop anyways, and they're not a genetically modified grown crop. Corn, I only buy certified organic and I don't even really use a lot of corn products, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, I've seen with fruit, you know, certain fruits, like even if they're organic, they just taste like nothing. I mean, the, the inorganic ones taste like chemicals. The organic ones, they still barely taste like anything. They're a bit better. But some of them, yeah, I don't know what they're doing. Or the labels are BS, but just like blackberries. Um, yeah. I remember I was in Seattle a few years ago, walking with my friend, and they had blackberry bushes all over the place. And we would pick them off just walking along the road, and they were delicious. Yeah. I mean, amazing. And going to the store garbage even if it's organic 
and a, yeah, and a lot of that has to do with with the shipping. And when you're getting it at the store, it has to be picked. It's not allowed to ripen fully on the vine simply because if it did, that shipping window where that would still be viable without turning to mush or molding is such a short time frame that they can't allow it to stay on the vine to develop that flavor and to get fully ripe on the vine because by the time it gets picked, packaged, shipped to the store and you have access to it, it would all be perished. So that's where I really obviously have preached a lot getting as close to the source as possible and supporting more small farms within your community because that way you can get it. It's not being shipped these long distances and it's allowed, it can financially wise, be allowed left on the vine and you're getting it right at its peakness. And that's where your flavor and the nutrition comes in too, because as soon as something is harvested, so as soon as I pick a blackberry or a zucchini, whatever it is, as soon as it comes off of the plant, there is nutritional degrade. Now, so the longer it's off there, if I eat it at a day old versus two weeks old, I'm getting way more nutrients and flavor at that day old point. So there's both nutritional and flavor issues. And part of it's just our massive industrial agriculture system that we have now with supermarkets and all of that. And, you know, we're getting things shipped from Mexico during the off season because we're quite spoiled and can almost get any fruit or vegetable, really, as long as you can afford it, you can almost get it any time of year. Yeah. Yeah. Like I see in the store, like at Whole Foods, they have strawberries all year, blackberries, raspberries, blueberries. And then the other fruits seem to rotate, but those they're there all year long. Yeah. Too. Mm. And they're they're pretty tasteless as well. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. yeah they are. As I said, even the organic ones just is like nothing crazy. Yeah. So if you are gonna start a garden, which I highly recommend, because even if you have just a small amount of space, you can grow small things. Even an apartment, you can grow basil. Basil you can actually grow in just water. You can get basil to grow in water. Oftentimes you'll see it still at the supermarket and it'll have like the roots on it. And you can just put that in a jar with water and a sunny windowsill and you can grow basil. Now, you know, it's not a huge amount, but it's something. But growing your own food, even if it's just for the taste alone, will get you hooked. Yeah, the nutrients. Some people, I guess, do, you know, microgreens or sprouts. Have you ever done any of those? Or do you do you stick more with animal husbandry or do you do produce as well? Just Don't a little we, bit? You sprouts? We do. We do both. So we do a really large garden. We have a, a a small orchard, berry plants, all of that, and the hus- animal husbandry. But I live really far north, so I just live a couple of hours south of the Canadian border, actually. And so we have a really short growing season here. So in the winter months, and I, I can a lot, dehydrate, freeze dry. We do all kinds of different types of food preservation, but still in the middle of winter, I'm not really able to grow lettuce. You know, I don't have a whole lot of fresh greens coming on. So in the middle of winter, I will do sprouts and microgreens just so that we get some of that, you know, fresh, bright green into our diet and for the taste buds. Okay. I guess last question or two, what do you recommend for people that are, I mean, they're just starting out and they're afraid. They don't know. I don't know how to grow stuff. I don't know how to do this, that, the other. How do they dip their toe in and get started? Yeah. Well, if you're looking to grow, like if you're like, okay, I want to start growing a little bit of our own food. Honestly, is I would look at starting with some herbs if you have very limited space. 
So just growing a little bit of herbs and some lettuce in a pot. Lettuce doesn't have a huge root system need. It's a pretty quick growing crop. It's it's pretty easy to do. And so I would just recommend starting by growing a few herbs in pots and a little bit of lettuce. And then if you've got more space, then in the springtime, I would look at doing, you can either do a larger patio garden, or if you've got some yard space, you could do some raised beds and grow some vegetables that way. If you've got more space, like say you live in the suburbs and you have a, you know, a decently sized backyard, I would consider just putting in a garden space right in, in the ground and not even going the raised bed route, but just you know getting a garden going just in the backyard. And just starting the first year, I recommend that people start with the foods that you already like and enjoy. Because a lot of times I'll see people will start a garden and they you know, follow people online and or see that their neighbor is growing XYZ. And so they just plant the same thing that their neighbor is or maybe who they're following online is growing and then realize I have two gallons worth of kale here and I don't even like kale. I don't cook kale. I don't eat kale. Now what am I going to do with this? And so if you pick things that you actually really, you know, enjoy eating and look to just grow a couple of those, just start small and then each year you can expand a little bit as both your skill level and your space allows. Yeah, that makes sense. That's hilarious. I could picture that, yeah. You grow stuff and you're like, oh, kale, no, because you don't want it. Yeah, yeah I, I did that with Swiss chard. I'm like, I'm going to grow rainbow Swiss chard because it's so pretty. It's all these colors. And then I had all this Swiss chard and I'm like, I don't even like Swiss chard. Why did I, why did I grow this? <laughs> That's hilarious. Hey. Well, very good. Um, so where can people find out more about your work? And what, you know, what's the name of your YouTube channel? Like, where can they uh, take more action and learn more from you? Yeah. So everything is actually at my website, which is melissaknorris.com. You'll see all my books there. You'll see links to the YouTube channel. And then my podcast, because if you're listening to this, then you are a podcast listener, is Pioneering Today. So if you're a podcast listener, we've got over 400 episodes. Um, that is a quick, easy place to jump in while you're on the go. Okay, that's excellent. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.